This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. Hello, and welcome to the Francis Effect podcast. This episode is for late October 2018. My name is David Dalt, and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York and is an assistant professor of systematic theology and spirituality at the Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Dan, as always, it's great to see you. Welcome. Thanks, David. Good to be with you. On today's episode, we're looking at three topics. First of all, we'll be looking at the recent resignation of Cardinal Whirl. Next, 4,000 migrants are in a caravan heading toward our southern border, and President Trump has called on countries to stop them or suffer the consequences. And in our last segment of the show, we'll look at the recent reports about the catastrophic and rapid onset of climate change that faces us if we fail to act decisively in the near future. We also have special bonus segments for all you friends of Frank who support the show by donating each month on Patreon. Every couple of weeks, we add a little bit of bonus audio and an extended discussion or interview. If you'd like to hear them, you can. Go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod and become a monthly supporter of the show. Before we get started, just wanted to remind you that you can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisfxpod at gmail.com. We also want to thank our season sponsors, Liturgical Press and Franciscan Media. They help to make this show possible, so please show them your support and let them know that you appreciate it. Thank you. Dan, how have you been? David, I've been okay. It's been busy. We've been, uh, at least at Catholic Theological Union, we've been on what we call Reading Week. This is our kind of semester break, kind of midterm break. It coincided, coincidentally, with some meetings that I had out in California. I'm on the board of trustees of, a, of, of two schools, and this was one of them. I was able, uh, as well, to catch up with some friends while I was out there, which is always nice. Then gave a lecture in Cleveland, Ohio. So I went from California, where it was nice and sunny and warm to Cleveland, where it was about 40 degrees, and I did not have appropriate clothes for that. And so uh, as a runner, I, I do like to, to run outside when I'm visiting a new city or visiting anywhere. And I, for some reason, did not 
plan accordingly. So that was a bit disappointing. But I do love Cleveland. It's a great city. I wish I had more time to spend there. And um, so now we're back. And, and today we pick back up with the semester and uh, we're moving forward. How are you? Well, I'm, I'm good. Like you, I have been busy. My business where I do audio production and podcast work has been taking off. And that has been kind of a mixed blessing. It's good to have steady work. It's also difficult to have steady work that comes erratically and it's hard to schedule. So I have been learning, like every entrepreneur does, how to balance all that with life and family. Speaking of family, over the weekend, we went to the County Line Orchard, which is an annual event that my my wife and our children, we go to. It's uh, one of these sprawling pumpkin patch apple orchard kind of places with hay rides and corn mazes and all of that. And so warm we, apple cider. Yeah, exactly. But you're there having an, a, a wonderful family experience with 4,000 of your friends oh, in wow. northern Indiana. It's a major business. It's, it's kind of like Pumpkin Patch Disneyland in many ways. But we, we have a blast every time that we go. And the kids have come to expect that. And we have really enjoyed having it be a regular part of our fall schedule. And so we did that this weekend. And uh, the weather is finally starting to turn colder which is good for all of us because we've gotten out the winter clothes and, you know, all the summer stuff is already packed away. So like you, we, we want to make sure that we're dressed appropriately. In the last few weeks, uh, for those that have been paying attention to the weather, it's been unseasonably warm. And so we've been kind of, we've been mixing and matching and figuring that out. But beyond that, life is good. Writing is good. And teaching is also good. I'm doing a little bit of teaching at Loyola. So all that is, you know, I'm busy, but I can't really complain about the busy because it's all stuff that I enjoy. That's good. It's the best kind of busy. Yeah. Now, uh, remind me what you're teaching this semester. So I'm teaching uh, two courses. One is uh, Fundamental Theology, which is the kind of first-level systematics theology course that people primarily in the MDiv program take as part of their core requirements. And then I'm teaching an upper-level seminar on the spirituality of Thomas Merton for today. So uh, the focus of of that course is really his writings on war and violence, race and civil rights and justice. Some more of his later work, really, that I don't think gets as much attention as some of his earlier writings on prayer and contemplation and, and spirituality. Prayer and contemplation and spirituality play a big role in these other texts as well. But it's really exciting to be able to kind of dive into with with a you know a bunch of students, many of whom have never actually read this part of Merton's writings. Oh, wow. And uh, on the one hand, it's really, it's great to be able to go into depth in this seminar. On the other hand, it's it's very disturbing to realize how timely what Merton was writing in the 1960s is for today, particularly around issues of violence and peacemaking and, and racism. So that's always very striking and, and leads to some very interesting conversations. And as you're teaching this class, I know that you, you do a lot of in-depth work on Merton. Has this changed in any way, uh, the way that you've been thinking about the Merton corpus? Not so much. I, I've been. This is actually really the third time I've taught a course like this. I've taught it previously at Boston College and at CTU in, in a summer program, respectively. So they were much more condensed versions of of this course. So this is the first time I've been able to spend a whole semester in the seminar format, which allows you to really do some close reading and and go into depth and have some pretty intense conversations. So in, in terms of understanding. Merton's corpus or Merton studies more. I, I don't know that it's having that much of an effect on me. I think what's maybe most interesting to me this time around is 
the application of it. You know, so what what does Merton have to say for us today mm. um, is is just given the the climate of our society and of the church, it's just extraordinarily timely. So I think those applications, um, what, what students bring from varying perspectives and, and contexts, really opens up powerful reflection on what he's saying um, and what it means to be Christian today. Fascinating. Well, g- given the fact that we're talking about timely events, why don't we turn to our first topic, and that is Archbishop Donald Cardinal Whirl has been trying to resign for a couple of years at least, and the Pope has accepted his resignation, and the context of that acceptance is the sex abuse crisis that has been continuing to roil in the church. But for our listeners that may not be up to speed on who Cardinal Whirl is, why don't you give us a background and then we can talk a little bit about this? Yes, uh, Cardinal Donald Whirl is the well, up till recently, uh, has been the Archbishop of Washington, D.C. It's, it's a very important uh, diocese. It's a very important uh, church in the United States. Prior to that, he was Bishop of Pittsburgh for about 18 years. And it's really in that context, his history as, as Bishop of that Western Pennsylvania diocese, which is a significant diocese in its own right, that has led to his renewed request to retire, essentially. The, the thing about, so a couple different things. Uh, one is, yes, it's customary. It's, it's actually written into the Code of Canon Law that upon uh, a bishop's 75th birthday, they submit their letter of resignation to the, to the Holy Father, to the Pope. And it's, it's actually the responsibility of the Pope to accept that resignation. Otherwise, um, they still are the bishop of that diocese. So uh, Cardinal Whirl is 77. He'll be 78 in about two weeks. His birthday is actually the same week as my birthday, so mid-November. And so that means th- almost three years ago now, he had submitted a letter to Pope Francis requesting to retire, requesting resignation. And for reasons that are known really only to Pope Francis and to maybe the Congregation for Bishops and to Cardinal Worrell and the Apostolic Nuncio in Washington, Pope Francis has not accepted that. Now, there are a lot of reasons why that might be. Usually, the Pope will allow somebody to continue or request that somebody will continue serving as Bishop of a diocese if they're in good health and Cardinal Whirl for being almost 78 years old is actually a, a pretty healthy, vibrant 78, one might say. The fact that there may be other more pressing concerns, including vacancies in other dioceses, uh, either in this country or elsewhere in the globe, that the Pope sees as, as more pressing. Or there are other things underway, uh, projects, um, it, other issues or concerns that uh, may not be public knowledge that... Rather than bring somebody new in and have to learn everything from scratch and get to know the staff and get to know the people of the diocese, get to know whatever the circumstances are, it'd be better to stick around for a couple more years and and finish that up. We don't know what really that is. My hunch is, from what I know about the case with Cardinal Whirl, is that it's it's most likely the fact that he's a, he's known and respected as as a very good leader and manager. I use manager not in a pejorative sense, but he's able to keep things rolling as somebody in a position of leadership. And I think you know that combined with his good health said to Pope Francis, you know, effectively, well, here's somebody who can keep doing this a little bit longer while I work on appointing good bishops in other dioceses where there's a much more pressing concern. That's my hunch. So that's the background. Now, as, as our listeners know, and we talked about in the first episode of this season, this summer brought a lot of 
very tragic and devastating news. And in some sense, these are not new, as we've talked about, but have brought to light a renewed attention and and perhaps actually a newer appreciation for the scope and gravity of the sexual abuse cover-up, particularly in the state of Pennsylvania. And that report came out in mid-August, as as you recall. What that grand jury report did was look over the last 70 years at different dioceses, including that of Pittsburgh, where Cardinal Worrell was once bishop for the better part of two decades, the late 80s into the early aughts, as they say, yeah. 2005, 2006. Yeah. And so, you know, that and the fact that uh, the other big news item of the summer was directly related to Cardinal Worrell's predecessor, former Cardinal Theodore McCarrick, there's just been a lot of renewed attention to and, and kind of spotlight on Cardinal Worrell. And what the grand jury report showed was that Worrell has, in, in retrospect, a rather mixed history and handling of clergy sexual abuse in the Diocese of Pittsburgh. I say mixed because he was actually known on the one hand in the mid-90s, from 1991 to 1995, of being very aggressive in refusing to allow a priest who was not just credibly, I guess, multiply credibly accused from being granted faculties to minister. So this is somebody that he had withdrawn faculties, meaning that he was not allowed to perform public ministry. The priest appealed to Rome to what we would consider, to put it in terms of a loose analogy, sort of like the Catholic Church's Supreme Court, equivalent of that, analog to that, in that what's called the apostolic signatura, the kind of Supreme Court overturned then Bishop Donald Wuerl's refusing to grant this priest faculties. And even, uh, and this was around 1993, even with that coming down from this high church court, Bishop Worrell refused still to grant him faculty. So he was kind of being, you know, he's refusing to accept that from the high court and actually travels to Rome over those two years to meet with John Paul II. And uh, eventually the apostolic signatura overturns its own decision and backs then Bishop Worrell, now Cardinal Worrell. So he was seen in a very public way of being a defender as early as as the early 90s of the rights of the of those who were abused and of handling a case like that very seriously, very committedly. Well, one thing that I want to make sure that our listeners understand, because this may be a bit of Catholic minutia that is lost on some, a bishop has a lot of power in their own see. And so when a, when a bishop says, I'm not going to do this, even if Rome was telling them to do this, we have to remember that the Pope is considered first among equals. And so even though the Pope has a lot of power in the church, bishops also carry a lot of power in their own diocese. And that that's part of what's playing in here is that even though world was being told by Rome, you have to do this, that doesn't necessarily mean that within the confines of his see, world has to accede to what they're saying. Yeah, it is. It is. That's a good point. I appreciate you bringing that up because it is a bit of inside baseball. Um, yeah. And, and the Pope is a bishop. I mean, the being a, you're not ordained a Pope. You are the Bishop of Rome. And as Bishop of Rome, you are the Pope. The Code of Canon Law does reserve certain rights only to the Bishop of Rome. And it's it's very, very hard, very, very difficult 
for a pope, to, you know, to actually intervene, like you were saying, in the workings of a local diocese, because the church is first and foremost a local and its sign of communion is gathered around the particular bishop, you know, the pastor of that local church. So everything you said is exactly right. And and because, you know, the church is not a, a government in the typical sense. It's not a co- corporation with a CEO who happens to be wearing a white outfit named a pope. It's very complicated in this way. So anyways, all of that is to say that, you know, the the report from the grand jury showed, okay, well, there are instances like this that were already well known where where Wuerl handled the case just above and beyond with, with kind of extraordinary, you know, courage and insistence. And yet there were other cases, uh, in, in particular, three other cases where questions are raised about whether he handled things appropriately. And this centers around things like, you know, somebody who was accused and or admitted to something, was sent off for treatment, came back at the recommendation of psychologists or the treatment centers that, you know, this person had been reformed in some way. And and sometimes these people were, these priests were put back into ministry and sometimes they weren't. But what the grand jury report said was, when you look at this now, what you see is not what we see after 2002 with a zero tolerance policy that there's kind of a grayer area here. And um, there's a great, very, very long form uh, article by Joshua McElwee from the National Catholic Reporter that that chronicles these three cases and, and talks about case by case, how in the timeline, how Wuerl handled these cases. And it's it's very complicated. I'm, I'm not trying to, def- you know, arbitrarily defend Wuerl or anybody else by calling it gray. It's 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 complicated. And so that, that's the situation now. And, and in light of this kind of coming to surface of this complicated checkered history, perhaps, of handling these cases, Wuerl felt it more important for the the good kind of standing of the Diocese of Washington and of the people of Pittsburgh, if the Holy Father would finally accept his resignation. You know, this is something he had asked going on three years ago. And uh, on October 12th, the Pope did accept his resignation. Did so admittedly reluctantly. He didn't want to do that, but acknowledged that Wuerl's request was worthwhile. And so that's basically where we are right now. I have a question for you. Yeah. Um, you know, as I've been you know, studying over this and following it and, and thinking about it, you know, one of the questions that keeps surfacing and it comes up in people who know world and people who don't in, in terms of commentators and so forth is what do we do about changing standards of medicine, psychology, you know, these kinds of practices? And I feel very torn by this because on the one hand, retrospect gives us or hindsight gives us a 2020 perspective. And so I'm not I don't raise this question in any way to excuse anything. I, I just wonder, what do you think about this? How do we interpret this? How do we make sense of somebody's decisions when it is kind of gray like that? Well, and let me take two steps back in answering that question. So first of all, as I said a couple of episodes ago, this particular area, Western Pennsylvania, is the area where my wife grew up. She did not grow up Catholic, but she grew up around Catholics. And so this affects people that she knew when she was growing up, friends of hers. The other piece of this is exactly what you've said. Like, I think that the way that this has been reported in the past week in the news has made it seem like this is some sort of punitive action against Cardinal Whirl. And that's more the news reporters trying to get an angle on a story and less what's actually happening. And I appreciate so much the patient way that you laid this out. Like, this is not meant to be read, by my take, as a punitive action against Cardinal Whirl. 
And I think part of the reason for that is what you've just said, is that he, at least later in the game, was a staunch defender of the of the victims and trying to keep priests that were predatory kind of pushed to the side and marginalized to the extent that he could. That being said, the question that you've raised is exactly the question, because we have appropriately a zero tolerance policy for these kinds of things now. But that was not always the case. And as the culture shifted you know, we've seen that the response has shifted and the response of leaders has shifted. And how do we look at that in retrospect? And this is, it's not just the Catholic Church where this is the case. We can look at a great many situations where leaders do a mixture of things, some of them wonderful and good and progressive and some of them horrible. And how do you balance those on the scales? I don't have a magic access point to be able to say, you know, on the balance, this person is bad or good. I and and for me, it's it's interesting to realize how much of the church, which, you know, as a theologian, I had always heard that the church was intended to not be esoteric. There was not supposed to be secret knowledge. We were not supposed to be Gnostics. It, it's not Gnostics. We're not a fraternal organization. So there, there shouldn't be hidden things that affect the lives of believers. Everything should be available to believers. This was, you know, the ancient church's ethos, and it should be the ethos of today. But as an institution, the church is Byzantine and is is wrapped in great layers of secrecy. And to me, that's the more important question, is why is it that we have allowed the clericalism, why is it that we have allowed the the structure of the church to grow to the point where there is not the ability to speak plainly about these things with our leadership and to speak plainly about these things, particularly with with bishops. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think that is the pressing concern. And it's something that is, thanks be to God, uh, unavoidable at this point. You know, it, there have been voices who have called for responding to clericalism. Pope Francis himself, for the last five years of his ministry as Bishop of Rome uh, and in Argentina before that, has been a very vocal critic of this kind of two-tiered kind of church reality, this sort of cultic priesthood, this sense of clericalism. And so that's exactly right. I mean, that is a problem. That is, and it is in some sense at the core of a lot of this uh, crisis around cover-up. I guess the question I have is one that uh, was raised by Sister Carol Keehan, who is the head of the Catholic Health Association and a, and a very, very well-respected uh, kind of ethicist and leader in in healthcare professionalism and so forth. And and she said in in an article talking about the the world kind of analysis, she says, and actually here I'll just quote her. She she says that she hoped that world's actions would be evaluated with consideration of quote where psych- psychiatry, law enforcement, and the church was in the eighties and nineties, and not where we are in twenty eighteen. End quote. And so I guess that's the question that's been staying with me. It's not to evaluate, you know, Cardinal Whirl in the same way that we're, you know, people are trying to evaluate somebody like Cardinal McCarrick. It's 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 evident um, from the allegations that McCarrick's kind of personal sin and his, you know, these things, these crimes, the harassment, the abuse, and so forth, that's unassailably wrong. <laughs> like that's just that is wrong and does say something about his character perhaps and says something about how he should be remembered and how he will be with Wurl, as, as you said earlier it's, it's much more complicated you know he's this is not a punitive action he's not being accused of anything personally the question is again and it's mixed because the three cases where it seems to be maybe he didn't respond fast enough or with the zero tolerance kind of approach this took place in 1991 1994 and 1990 
And at the same time, it was between 1991 and 1995 that he was the same time. It seems like he wasn't handling these three cases with the way that we would expect today or, or would want him to have handled them before he was he was handling cases like this other case of, of Anthony Sapola of, of going to Rome and fighting to make sure he does not get reinstated in ministry. So it's, it's actually in the time itself in the 90s. So I guess my question is, you know, the thoughts about how we evaluate actions when people are working with presumably the best advice and knowledge at the time. You know, how do we do that? Because this is a question we have, you know, historically, we raise these questions about literature. We raise these questions about history. We raise these questions about theology. You know, for instance, based on 2018 scientific knowledge, I can't hold Thomas Aquinas responsible for his disturbed, limited understanding of human biology, for instance, right, from the 13th century. Now, that doesn't stop people from wanting to maintain that today. But I raise that as, as you know, maybe an inappropriate a- analog. I, I guess I'm just trying to wrap my head around what Sister Kean is saying. Sure. And I, I take the point, but I also think about touchstones from Christian history. So a, a major touchstone for me is a man by the name of John Woolman, who in the late 17th century, early 18th century was enlightened enough to realize that slavery was wrong. And so decided, among other things, he refused to wear any clothing that was dyed with any colors. So he always dressed in gray because the same ships that brought the dye over were ships that brought slaves over. So, you know, we have examples of people who have the correct moral compass, even at times when their peers are fully enshrouded with this clouded way of looking at things. So I want to give the benefit of the doubt. I also see examples of people who are being clarion calls for righteousness, clarion calls for correct behavior, people who are not willing to give in to the spirit of the times in either direction, either in acting too harshly or in acting with blindness. And I'm aware enough politically to realize that it's a real problem to ask for perfection from everybody. (laughs) Um, And certainly I don't want to talk like I'm speaking from a, a place of, you know, moral perfection. But But I do think that it is possible for leaders to be visionary. I do think that it is possible for leaders to do the right thing, even if it means losing their leadership. And to me, those are the things that I look for. And so that makes me think that Whirl was actually onto something more than a lot of the other bishops that I have seen during that same period. Yeah, I think I agree with you 100 percent. And that's basically where I fall myself at this point, too, is is that. You know, his personal history is complicated in his handling of this. But like you said, it's not marred by just going with the flow. He did go above and beyond in at least one or a few other cases. But I think you're you know, you're right. If something is wrong, like that abuse back then is still wrong. You know, and I think there is this call for prophetic action and and moral uh, standards, what you call the moral compass. I will say then, you know, he may have been operating with the best intentions and, and the advice of professionals at the time. So, you know, you can't go back and change that necessarily, but he can respond differently today. And I think the way I read what was going on is that his personal insistence of really pushing the the Holy Father's kind of feet to the fire about you need to accept my resignation because because this is a complicated history and I take responsibility. He did write to his to the priests of 
in, in at the end of August, actually, uh, after the grand jury report, he wrote, a, as as one report put it, a unusually emotive letter to his archdiocesan priests and asked them, quote, for forgiveness for my errors in judgment, for my inadequacies, and also for your acceptance of my contrition for any suffering I have caused, end quote, so that there is a kind of sense of penance or, or retrospection. Well, and I, the, the one thing that I was going to add to that is that, you know, despite what we who are outside of the diocese are thinking and saying about this, there's also the fact that the victims of this in Western Pennsylvania have been calling for his resignation for a long time. And so those that are among his flock, you know, who have been the most harshly affected by these circumstances have been saying this is the appropriate action. This will help to be a balm. This will help to be healing. I don't think that that should be discounted. You know, regardless of what we think from a distance about his behavior, those that are actually there need to be, you know, their voices need to be uh, an important part of this consideration and discussion as well. Yeah, what's tricky about that is because I agree 100% with you. That's right. And that's one of the kind of structural sins of uh, the church is is not giving First of all, lady writ large, uh, an adequate voice and hearing, um, but but especially those who are victim survivors of, of uh, sexual abuse and harassment. I will say, though, that one thing that I did find interesting is that this this one article that I read in the National Catholic Reporter, you know, uh, Nicholas Cafardi, who's a civil and canon lawyer from Pittsburgh, who knew Wuerl and, and worked with him. And it was actually on uh, in 2002 appointed to the U.S. Bishop's National Review Board in the wake of Dallas. So he's very connected in the policies and working to, to right the ship as, as we seen over the last 16 years. There has been tremendous progress in that regard. He says, in addition to the victims' voices that you rightly raised, there have been people who have taken advantage of this. So this article says that Cafardi also noted that some, quote, right-wing Catholic groups have been expressing opposition to Whirl and also calling for his resignation since at least 2004, when the then bishop said he would not refuse communion to the then Democratic presidential candidate John Kerry, a Catholic who supported abortion rights. And so he says, I have to wonder, is this not also part of the agenda of the right-wing crowd that is out to end the Holy Father? Um, he's the former dean of the Duquesne University School of Law, and he says, it's hard not to see a political side in this, too. So that's a... You know, we see this with the Vigano stuff, too, that there there are people who are taking advantage of the legitimate grievances, the legitimate anger and, and lament and, and righteous frustration of victims and victims' families and victims' advocates, victim survivors. And, and there are people like those who, for political reasons, uh, are, are also calling for resignation. So this is – it's messed up. I've recently been reading and meditating on Leviticus 19, which was written during uh, – Scholarship has told us it's written during the exile, so it's a it's an attempt, I think, to to make sense of a of a nonsensical situation, and it's it's a real grab bag of do's and don'ts. But if you read through Leviticus 19, one of the things that it says is that there's there's a real care for the victim in Leviticus 19, and a desire for just dealings with those who who are in situations where they are threatened. There's also a very clear prohibition against gossip. So both of those things need to live in balance as we think about this. So we need to have transparency and we need to have justice for those that have been wronged. And the the text is clear about that. But we also need to guard ourselves, as Paul said, against the really human desire in our fallen state to use the advantage of information as a way of making ourselves 
to shift ourselves from being righteous to becoming self-righteous. And I think that's when we're looking at these right-wing Catholic groups, we're seeing those that don't have a check on their self-righteousness, and they use this as an opportunity to really violate the Levitical edict, the Pauline command, and the just good sense practice of not falling into gossip. And gossip feels so good when you're doing it. And yet, it is so damaging. And Paul says this, it's not just damaging to your soul, it's damaging to the body of the church. It rips the church apart. And so, you know, that is the thing that we have to be prayerfully on guard against is the notion somehow that because we now have this information and this transparency that somehow our sins are no longer going to be looked at in the judgment. And then that's what we need to be mindful of at all times. I think it's a really good point. I'm reminded too, you know, your, your, the emphasis on the experience of, of the victims, both in the Levitical sense and so forth. I'm reminded of what Korean uh, theologians have been working on or those engaged with uh, Korean kind of uh, ancestry, this notion of Han, which is very difficult to translate into other languages. But this idea of Han is uh, sometimes kind of characterized as focus or attention, theological reflection on those who have been sinned against. And so... You know, so often, especially in, in Roman Catholicism, we have focused so much on the sin itself and the sinner and the victim or victim survivors, as we say in this case, get occluded. They get they kind of get overlooked or dismissed. And this is kind of a, a holistic way of talking about the reality of sin, that there are people who are directly affected. And what is the perspective of, of the sinned against, as it were? And so this idea of Han, I think, really speaks to this Levitical concern. This is a relational issue here. And one thing, if there's a positive light to be taken from, and I think there might be several of, of the recent revelations of the, the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report and the conversations that we've had since the summer and onward, is that the, the experience, the voices, that, uh, that comes with being one who is a victim survivor is, is no longer uh, overlooked, but that there's a prioritization that's, that's placed there. Well, we are continuing to be in prayer for the victims of sex abuse in Western Pennsylvania and, in fact, in every diocese around the world. And we continue to be in prayer for Cardinal Worrell and for the church and for you. And with that, uh, you're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Thanks for being here. Hey listeners, this is Dan here. I just want to tell you about a very cool event that's in the works and is scheduled to take place here in Chicago on December 7th and December 8th, 2018. This is a conference called Disappear from View, Thomas Merton 50 Years Later and Beyond. And it is a co-sponsored um, conference that is taking place Friday evening and all day Saturday, December 7th and 8th. It's co-sponsored by the Bernadine Center at Catholic Theological Union, by the Hink Center for Catholic Thought at Loyola University Chicago, and by the Thomas Merton Society Chapter of Chicago. We have a public lecture by Father Richard Rohr on Friday evening and uh, a, a whole slate of excellent keynote and concurrent session speakers on Saturday. You can find out more about this event by going to ctu.edu slash events. That's ctu.edu slash events. Hope to see you here.
Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Haran, and I'm here with David Dahl. Every couple of weeks, we get together to look at current events, culture, and politics uh, from the perspective informed by our Catholic faith. This week, we have taken a little break from our season three thematic focus to take a look at three pressing issues today. We're going to shift gears now and take a look at a uh, dire situation that involves thousands of migrants who are making their way from Central America to the southern border of the United States. David, what is this all about? Well, if we listen to the words of our president, they're not migrants, they're hardened criminals. And so what we're dealing with is a group of people who are, and we've talked about this before on the show, who are fleeing conditions that we began to create in the 1980s. When we look at what was then the School of the Americas, when we look at the policies of Reagan towards Central America, to the, the sort of the notions of fear of communism and the fear of the domino effect, you know, down on our southern border. And so all of this has contributed to horrific conditions, juntas, death squads, you know, for more than 40 years. And so we have destabilized economies in these countries. We have economies that are dependent now upon their major economy is drug or crime related. And so all of these are conditions in which I would certainly not want to be raising my children. And if I was living in those conditions, I would want to get out. I would want to go to some place where there's stability, where there's opportunity, where there's safety. And if even I can't get there, I would want to make sure that my children could get there. And so, you know, what we're talking about are people who are fleeing the consequences of our convenience, the consequences of choices that we as a country have made for the better part of my lifetime. And now we are looking at these people and the current political climate is such that we're not looking at them with a lens of humanity. We're not looking at them with a lens of their plight. Instead, we're looking at them again through a lens of our convenience. And if you can hear the tenor of my voice, listeners, you understand. And Dan is here sitting with me so he can see. I'm very exercised right now about this because I am finding this to be increasingly frustrating because of what it says to the world about what we think we are as Americans. And what we think we are as Americans right now are people who have all the marbles and we don't want to share. We're on the playground and we've got the ice cream and we want to make sure that nobody else gets ice cream. And that's the mindset is that we have a limited set of goods and we have a limited set of opportunities. And these need to be for the people that look like us and that we like and that have the right hair color and the right eye color. And they don't need to be for coming from, you know, down south of the border. That is unconscionable. That is, in my mind, it is a complete reversal of what the founding fathers and what our, what our Catholic leadership through the years has said that we should be thinking about and doing as a nation. So a little sermonette there, but I, I'm, you know, again, the thing that really got me going about this was the characterization that the people who are coming here are by definition criminal. They're not. They're by definition victims. They're doing what any rational human being would do who loved their children. Right. And, the, you know, you mentioned the, the Catholic Christian perspective, and it's very clear how we're to respond to people who are fleeing violence, who are refugees uh, that are displaced because of war. And this is very clearly the case, danger to their own lives. Um, there are people who are seeking asylum. I also am thinking back to the last segment, you had mentioned Leviticus and, and some reflections on that. I mean, it's so 
deeply embedded in our tradition, that prioritization, what, what sometimes is called in Catholic social teaching, the preferential option for the poor, prioritization goes to the orphans, the widows, the alien, uh, which in this case does not mean extraterrestrial, <laughs> but rather the terrestrial alien, the person who is from another land who is uh, you know, seeking safety, seeking asylum. This is something that appears oftentimes uh, during Advent, but you know, perhaps not frequently enough for people who want to dehumanize or characterize, as you rightly put it, these sisters and brothers of ours who are simply just seeking safety for themselves and for their, their children. You know, how quick people are to forget that Jesus, Joseph, and Mary were refugees who fled what today we would call Palestine, Israel, to Egypt, right? I mean, this is a centerpiece of of the early kind of um, infancy narratives. So it is. It's unconscionable for all the reasons you've mentioned, but this is something that is worth looking at in terms of the language we use, as as you've highlighted, around folks who are are seeking asylum, seeking refuge. So one of the things that's happening is that as these groups are moving towards the border, their numbers are increasing. So over the weekend, they were at 4,000. Now the number, by some reports, is as high as 7,000. And when our listeners hear this later in the week, it may be up to 10,000. That's a significant number of people. And we talked about this in terms of institutions in the last segment. Institutions hate to be reminded of the evil that they've done. As I've looked and reflected on my life One of the things that I have seen that has caused me the greatest amount of grief is that when there is victimization, when there is pain, when there is suffering, oftentimes what is treated more harshly is not not the cause of the suffering, but rather the people that dare to speak about their suffering. And again, to me, that is an unconscionable reversal of justice. It's an unconscionable reversal of how the world is supposed to operate. I was saying a moment ago that, you know, we have this mindset of scarcity right now, that that these people are coming to somehow steal our goodies. That's not the Christian message. The Christian message is not a message of scarcity. It's a message of abundance. You bring the little that you have into the crowd and by the miracle of our Lord and Savior, it is multiplied. It, it becomes enough for everyone and to spare. That is certainly, if you listen to when entrepreneurs get together and talk to one another, I think of a, there's a, a, a recording from Tony Robbins, the self-help guru from 20 years ago. But he's sitting oh, he's and he's still around. He's still around. <laughs> but, he, but, he, but at the time, 20 years ago, I was listening to this because my father had these tapes because he was a salesman. And he's talking to this entrepreneur, interviewing him. And the entrepreneur says, we all think that there's scarcity, but there's really not because we'll always figure out a better way to, you know, to make a widget or to, or to be more efficient or whatever. And so when business people talk to one another and they don't think anybody else is listening, they talk about abundance and they talk about how great the American ability is to create against scarcity. But when those businessmen turn around and they start speaking publicly to the rest of us, instead they start saying, oh, there's not enough. There's getting No, you can't. You can't have that narrative amongst yourselves of we get all the goodies because we're so smart and then turn around and say, but no goodies for you folks who are suffering because there's just not enough or you're bad or whatever, which is basically the narrative that we're hearing here. And to me, just when I think about this, I, I get I get angry on a number of levels. I get angry as a parent and as, as a father. I get angry as an American and I get angry as a Christian. And, you know, Stanley Hauerwas would remind me that I need to, on at least one of those levels, I need to attenuate my anger and try and get towards forgiveness. But it's hard sometimes. It's hard to look at people who have every advantage 
and who are denying even the possibility of safety and stability to those who are disadvantaged. That to me just seems, it seems to be heading in the wrong direction and it seems to smell like sulfur. Yeah. And I think one of the things that, um, you know, as Christians, we're, we're especially kind of called to right now is not to be swept up in the discourse and the kind of simple answers that are being thrown out by politicians. And, you know, the current president is somebody who has picked up this issue and has used it as a scare tactic. He's not the only one. I heard a senator quoted the other day who made this kind of non sequitur argument about, you know, if these people were really refugees, they would stop at the first place of safety they could. And, and because they're heading to the United States, this is clearly some other kind of nefarious thing, some kind of conspiracy. And what what the reporting shows is that actually quite a few, hundreds of these refugees have applied for refugee status in places like Mexico. But the truth is that these other nations uh, south of our border can only hold so many folks. And the other thing is, it's, I think it's twofold. One is something you've already brought up, which is that we ha as, a, as a country, as a nation, have a moral obligation to care for people who are displaced and, and are put into danger or are threatened by decisions that we have followed through with going back to the 80s and the violence that we have, uh, you know, perpetuated. But I don't think that a lot of politicians on any side of the aisle are particularly interested in acknowledging that in a public way. I think that the second thing is that a lot of these folks who are fleeing the violence have relatives who are residents, permanent residents or naturalized citizens here in the United States or in Canada. And so the moving north thing uh, is being misconstrued, maybe a generous way to put it is misunderstood, but I think it's much more uh, malicious. I think it's misconstrued in order to create scapegoats. That's one aspect of this. I also think that as we are just two weeks or so away from a midterm election, that certain politicians see it as advantageous to return to this dehumanizing rhetoric, not only to present scapegoats, but also to distract from the very real issues at hand. Just yesterday, um, over the weekend, as we're recording this, you know, the New York Times reported that the Trump administration is considering some kind of policy that would lock one's gender identity to their natal biological sex at birth and that that couldn't be changed. And this would be the most egregious strike against deeply marginalized community, and that's transgender women and men. This is the only national state-based kind of policy to be proposed in such a drastic form. There's no other country that does this. You know, talk about leading the way. We're leading the way uh, in very evil and I think despicable m manners. What I see with the kind of rhetoric at the Trump rallies and when he's going to campaign on behalf of um, other GOP members who are seeking election or re-election, and this kind of stuff comes up because his base gets energized by the scapegoating and the kind of dehumanizing rhetoric. What I see is a, a distraction from. Not only the moral issues that you've raised and that we've talked about here surrounding these migrants and refugees, but it also distracts from the policies at home, the domestic policies that are very serious and, and very problematic that, you know, let alone, and we'll talk about this in the next segment, let alone the, the complete dismantling of protections for non-human creation, for the environment, and that this is, this is not a joke, <laughs> you know? So, I mean, it's just... 
it is. It's despicable all around. I, I don't know what else to say other than as Christians, I feel like, you know, in the last segment we talked about being that prophetic voice, being the one who can try as best they can in a spirit of, of faith and a spirit of uh, scripture based understanding to see the world as God intends it to say this is not right. This is not OK. And I really admire our sisters and brothers who are at the border and the the various politicians. There are not many, but the various politicians who are advocates on behalf of displaced peoples, refugees and migrants. But, you know, we, we have got to work on this. Well, and I, I, I appreciate your bringing in that piece about the transgender that happened over the weekend. It's of a piece with something that Trump said on Friday at a rally in Arizona on Friday the 19th, where he says, Democrats want to throw your borders open wide to criminals. I want to build a wall. Okay, let's think about the context in which this is happening. We're about to enter a month, the month of November, where we celebrate the holiday of Thanksgiving, you know, where I don't want to build a wall. I don't want to build a bigger wall. I want to I want to build a bigger table. And the bigger table includes, just as you said, those that are fleeing from persecution and are, are, in, are in need of hospitality and shelter. It also includes those who are being persecuted in our midst who are for whatever reason, you know, and I really think that the Christian message is that the table is made for all of God's creation. If you look at again and again stories in the Bible, you find stories of those who were supposed to be excluded being included. And for us, that's a powerful story for us to reflect on and to come back to. That the table that is set for us is not the table that we're setting. It's set for us by our Lord, and our Lord has commanded hospitality above all, not exclusion. Yeah, I, I do think you're right that this idea of broadening a table, I mean, I think of what St. Augustine said in the 4th century uh, or the 5th century rather about, um, you know, the Eucharist that, you know, that famous catechetical line where he talks about the Eucharistic species and he says, you know, see who you are, become what you receive, reminding us that when we gather around that Eucharistic table, that table of Thanksgiving, that what we're receiving isn't just some kind of dispensed grace from above. What we're receiving is is a, a deeply powerful sign. Yes, Christ's sacramental presence for sure. But as Sacrosanctum Concilium, you know, the Constitution on Divine Liturgy tells us, we don't just receive Christ. Christ is not made present only in the Eucharistic species, but also in the assembly and in the word. And so, you know, for us, as Augustine says elsewhere, and St. Bonaventure and others will talk about this later on, Peter Lombard hints at this as well in the Middle Ages, We'll say that what it means in, in 1 Corinthians, uh, I believe it's chapter 11, where, where Paul talks about receiving unworthily, it's not about personal sin. You know, like somebody picks the wrong political party, as was, uh, you know, the issue in 2004, the way it was being, Eucharist was being treated as a weapon. But rather, it's about breaking the body of Christ. It's about unworthily because what you're receiving is blasphemous when you say amen to the Eucharistic species and you're saying F you to the body of Christ. And so that's my, I think, last word on, on this point about the migration crisis um, and, and the refugees is that if you hold a position where you are saying no, you know, screw you basically, die in the desert, die at home, you're not welcome here to especially our fellow baptized Christians, then you're saying F you to the body of Christ and you are receiving the Eucharist unworthily. Well, with that, let's take a short break. You're listening to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with Dan Haran. We'll be back in just a moment.
The Francis Effect is made possible in part by our wonderful supporters at Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod to find out about how you can join them. A couple of dollars a month really adds up, and we appreciate it. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash francisfxpod. Thank you. You're listening to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you issues and perspectives informed by our Catholic faith. In our final segment today, we're looking at the recent report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which, much more so than other reports that we've received in the past, seems very dire and very immediate in the sense of, of what is at stake and how rapidly we need to react And we're going to reflect a little bit on the political climate that we're in and the possibility of reaction in light of this report. So, Dan, why don't you fill us in a little bit on what the report says? Yeah, happy to do that, David. So the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is a coalition of uh, scientists, climatologists and other scientists from around the globe. This is really the leading organization. It's nonpartisan. It's not state based. It's it's very scientifically driven and uh, A few years back, in preparation for the Paris Climate Accord, most recently, but even prior to that in 2007, the IPCC has released a series of reports about basically what we might call in the spirit of Malcolm Gladwell, the tipping point. In this case, a very catastrophic tipping point. How many degrees centigrade does the kind of average temperature of the climate of of the globe have to rise before there are irreversible and devastating consequences? And, you know, as recently as as 2015, the kind of number that was proposed was two degrees centigrade. And this is two degrees Celsius above the pre-industrial climate average. So what we've seen is at this point in 2018, we're already the globe has increased in its warmth by one degree centigrade. And we see the devastating consequences of that already. Those who are in Chicago may have been to the uh, the Museum of Science and Industry, and there's a great exhibit. I'm not sure if it's still there, but I've been to it several times by a, an environmental photographer that chronicles the melting and shifting of glaciers and glacial ice over the last five, six, seven, ten years. He set up these cameras that take basically a couple pictures a day. And if you look throughout these years, you see it in kind of stop frame motion. It's just absolutely mind blowing that this this frozen water, this ice is just disappearing all over the place. We because of that one degree raise already, we're seeing the consequences. We see it in terms of more frequent, larger, more consequential hurricanes, uh, tornadoes, and other natural disasters. We see it in the wildfires of Western Canada and in the United States. We see it in the droughts in places like uh, India and certain parts of Sub-Saharan Africa, the rising ocean levels that are immediately threatening certain island nations um, in, in, the, in the Pacific and, and elsewhere. This is where we are right now. We've already, since the pre-industrial era, have increased the, the global climate by one degree. So what the, the scientists said, um, the IP, IPCC said, was that if we get to two degrees, if we raise it up one more degree, that's it. <laughs> this, this is it. And they said that we're on track to do that really within a century, less than a century. 
And so that was the report kind of around the same time as the Paris Climate Agreement. And a number of what might be economically classified as developing nations, but but we would call, you know, less wealthy nations, poor nations, particularly those who are situated on coasts or are island nations, actually raised an objection and said, Let's let's not just talk about the ultimate tipping point around the globe. We we want to know what happens between now and then. So what happens if the temperature raises from the pre-industrial era from one degree centigrade to one point five? So kind of a midway between where we are and where that absolute end is. So what's going to happen in between? And that's the report that just came out recently. And what the scientists discovered was that it's actually very close to what would happen at two degrees. <laughs> and so we do not have the time we once thought. Now we're talking about 2030 to 2050. And this is right around the corner. It's 2018, almost 2019. 2030 is 11 years from now. This is incredibly, incredibly serious. Well, and as we're taping this, just in the past couple of weeks, there was probably the most massive storm that has ever been seen in Florida that basically has wiped out entire cities in Florida. I grew up in South Georgia and I have friends and acquaintances who have, you know, who have houses down in Florida that they would vacation with and those houses are gone. And so now it's beginning to not just affect island nations and those on the sort of developing world edge, but it's also affecting people that are well entrenched in our economy and are, are you know, that are not on the coastline of America, but are affected now by things that are happening on the coastlines of America. So it's it's not somebody else's problem anymore. It is definitely an American problem now. It's Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a global problem. As Pope Francis, you know, borrowing this this famous phrase from the Brazilian theologian Leonardo Boff. You know, in Laudato Si, he talks about the cry of the earth and the cry of the poor are, are intricately connected to one another, and that those who suffer the effects of global climate change most immediately and first will be those who are materially poor. And, and we see this internationally with poorer nations. We see it at home with those who don't have the resources, can't afford, um, have no recourse to move from... You know, there's this powerful movie, you know, uh, Beasts of the Southern Wild, which is uh, I've really come to adore. It's it's very moving. And, and at the same time, you know, it, it shows the consequences of, of climate change and those who live very precariously, in this case, in, in Louisiana, near the Gulf of Mexico. And, and, and we see how floods and, and hurricanes and these sorts of things affect the poorest first. Now, what, what the IPCC report shows is that the United States will, will very likely, though we are, as you rightly say, feeling the consequences, seeing the effects now, because of the affluence, because of the diversity uh, ecologically in the U.S., we're not going to experience the brunt of it up first. But this is coming for everybody. <laughs> and we're the kind of perpetrators, you know, us in places like China are the perpetrators of this change more than anybody else. And yet we're going to feel the consequences later and maybe in the short term less dramatically. So it's it's just deeply morally troubling. Well, and that's, that's the kind of convenience crisis that I've been talking about a lot in this episode. We outsource our inconvenience. 
we take our misery and our pain and our suffering, either in terms of economic costs or in terms of, of direct bodily harm, and we place it upon vulnerable peoples. And we've been doing that for centuries. And as we do that, we, we believe that somehow that because it's distant from us, there's a moral barrier that we're not affected by it. This was why someone like John Woolman, who I mentioned in the last segment was so important to me, was because he refused to recognize that moral distancing. And he would say the vulnerability of these peoples, because they are children of God, is the same vulnerability that I have to feel. And it's, I mean, for those Catholics that still observe the Friday fast, that's part of what we're supposed to be doing in the Friday fast. We're supposed to be identifying, or for Catholics who observe Lent, we're supposed to be identifying with the suffering in the world and those who do not have access to the goods that we have. So we're intentionally having less so that we can be reminded that there are those who live with less all the time. It's a very good practice as far as I'm concerned to uh, not believe that that simply distancing ourselves from the suffering makes us somehow not culpable for the suffering. And that's, that's just another way of saying what you were saying that as Americans, we are, we're in the thick of this, whether, whether it's directly affecting us or not, but now it's going to begin to, to directly affect us because we're part of this planet too. Yeah, if I if I may, just to highlight some of the, the kind of executive summary of the, of the IPCC report, what exactly are we looking at in terms of, of, of the, the effects here? And so, the, you know, they scale their assessment based on what they call low, medium, or high confidence based on these models and their, and their research. And, you know, one thing they're very confident about, high, have high confidence, is that at 1.5 degrees centigrade, the sea level will rise such that, as we've mentioned, coastal delta-based regions, islands are, are going to be threatened. And this, this happens all around the globe. On land, it's really striking. They say that impacts on biodiversity and ecosystems, including species loss and extinction, are projected to be a little bit lower at 1.5 than 2, but nevertheless is going to have devastating impacts on terrestrial, freshwater, and coastal ecosystems and will then affect us as a species, humanity, who rely on the food, the land, the agricultural reserves. You know, it's, it's, it's really, really very striking. They talk about climate-related risks to health, livelihoods, food security, water supply, human security, and economic growth are to be affected directly by this. And, and what I've seen is that in places that are already arid, places that struggle with uh, occasional or frequent drought, will become completely unfarmable. And, you know, there will be whole populations of people that will be displaced and many of whom will die as a result of this. And so when they talk about, uh, as the scientists talk about, you know, human security, they're talking about this is, these are national security threats. In the last segment, we talked about the the several thousand uh, refugees and migrants who are fleeing war-torn areas in, in Central America and heading north. That's nothing compared to the millions of people who are going to be coming over borders and seeking places where there may or may not be food or where they can where they could possibly live and survive. It's just it's mind numbing on the one level. But I think you raise a very good point, David, which is to say that, as Pope Francis often reminds us, we can't let our consciences be dulled by the overwhelming kind of reality of, of these structural issues. And so it seems perhaps like a little thing, but whether it's abstinence of meat on Fridays, whether it's, you know, making little decisions about how one spends their resources, you know, what one eats, 
you know, how one travels, these kinds of life decisions. It's, it's better to start somewhere on the personal level. But then there's also, as Pope Francis says in Laudato Si, there's the pragmatic implications too. There's social and political action that we're called to. And so it is, as one person said, and I, I wish I could remember who it was, I think it was another international leader, described President Trump's decision to withdraw from the Paris Accord, described it as a crime against humanity because of the consequences that we see now more acutely with the IPCC report. Well, and I wanted to ask you as a Franciscan, as a person who has studied the writings of St. Francis and who is dedicated to a life of, of that charism, what does the Franciscan tradition tell us about care for the world? What does the Franciscan tradition tell us about the ways in which we are called as Catholics, as believers, to be mindful of these issues? I wrote a book about this. <laughs> so, um, I have a lot to say. Uh, just as a, as a commercial for our listeners, uh, David and I do have scheduled uh, a conversation on his radio program, Things Not Seen. So you can hear down the road at some future date a further conversation about this. I, I guess I'll say this. I think one of the misconceptions tied to St. Francis and his kind of place as the patron saint of ecology. And that was something in the early 90s that John Paul II bestowed upon him. And I think not wrongly, but uh, he's been reduced, as I called, as an effect of the birdbath industrial complex to this kind of cute romantic. He loved the birds. He loved wolves. He loved the animals. That's all fine and good, but it's not entirely true. He was not a vegan. He was not a vegetarian. He ate meat. That wasn't his perspective. His perspective was one of recognizing the inherent dignity and value of all creatures, human and non-human creatures, all sentient and non-sentient creatures. He had a deep understanding and appreciation for what the uh, book of Daniel reflects to us in the canticle that is prayed in the divine office, you know, where ice and snow is called to praise the Lord and birds of the air and, and fish of the sea are called to praise the Lord and all sons of humanity and daughters of humanity are called to praise the Lord, that all of creation has an intimate and direct relationship to the creator by virtue of being loved into existence by God. And so all creation has agency, has worth and value, not just what we consider worthwhile in a kind of utilitarian view, which is oftentimes how humans go about the world. Well, is this tree of use to me? Yes or no? Is this animal like, do mosquitoes have any use to me? Absolutely not. So mosquitoes are, you know, neutral or bad. Well, as I like to say, talk to the bats about how useful mosquitoes are. They provide a, a significant portion of their diet, right? And so I think one of the challenges, one of the things that, that the tradition of St. Francis and Claire of Assisi and, and these other kind of Franciscan luminaries over the centuries leave us with is a, a real reality check about how we talk about non-human creation, how we understand ourselves within it. You know, the, the talk I gave in Cleveland that I mentioned in our, in our intro was actually about this Franciscan theology and spirituality of creation. And, and one of the things in the Q&A that, you know, that I really uh, talked about was the fact that none of us photosynthesized our breakfast. None of us grew our own clothes. None of us have a built-in habitat. We, all we do is expel, as I'm doing right now into this microphone, poisonous air, carbon dioxide that will kill us if it weren't for algae and grass and trees and other uh, you know, plant life that can take that poison and provide us with oxygen so that we might live. The, the point is simply this. Francis of Assisi is not a naive romantic. He's somebody who recognized the truth of our deeply intertwined, interrelated sense of community. It's a family of creation. And, you know, 
the, the world, the cosmos was not created as a backdrop for our own human drama. That's not how God sees the world, you know, and that's revealed again in the two speeches from God in the book of Job. This is not God's vision for creation. This is an anthropocentric, human-centered vision, and that's what's led us to this. And as Pope Francis has challenged us in Laudato Si, added that into the magisterial teaching of the church, and as I think the Franciscan tradition challenges us to see, um, how are we intertwined? Again, I, I can't emphasize this enough. I probably sound like a raving lunatic, you know, like I'm beating this dead horse um, with all due respect to the horses, is, is, is that, you know, you don't get to choose whether or not you're related to the rest of creation. We live because of other lives that have been given, you know, the non-human life that sustains us. We live because other creatures provide us with the resources we need so we might live. We need to take that more seriously. That's what St. Francis would say. And so, I mean, we have a little over a decade, uh, according to this report, to really begin to make a difference. And, you know, we, we've talked about little things that people can do on a personal level, like like laying off from convenience and by accepting privation. But there's another aspect of this, and that is that, you know, probably there's 19 or 20 people that control most of the resources that are leading to this catastrophic change because there's this is we're talking about this at a social and industrial level not just a personal level what can we as christians do now to help to move the hearts or to change the minds of those who actually have their fingers on the levers i think two things david that's a really good question because that's that's ultimately the question isn't it it's the so what what can i do on the one hand, I think it's it's the little things that you named, the the practices incorporated into what Pope Francis calls, you know, it, uh, uh, an ecological conversion or integral spirituality of creation. So matching our penitential practices, whether in Lent or other seasons, with our increasing, you know, in this Franciscan sense, kind of increasing awareness of our relationship with the rest of creation. So that's one thing we can do at the personal level, the family level. I think the other thing is is the political and social dimension to be advocates to be a politically active catholic is not about abortion at least not alone and that's the way it's been construed and you'll get people for whom that's the only issue they ever care about say you can't talk about anything else until we deal with this and and that's just not true that's not catholic teaching that's just not true yes it's an important issue it's not the only issue and so climate change is a life issue. It's a, it's a life issue for our species, for humanity. It's a life issue for the entire planet or what Pope Francis calls our common, common home. So one way, and we're told, again, in, in church teaching, in a papal encyclical, we're told that it's not enough to do just those personal practices, but we have to be engaged dialogically and active politically and socially. So the Nobel Prize winner in economics this year, it was split. Um, it was a shared prize. But one, and his name's escaping me right now, a professor at Yale University, one of the things that he did was show through his research in economic models, uh, he came up with a system for carbon taxation. And, and that's been a very tricky thing. We've talked about cap and trade and been all these kinds of policies. And other nations are doing this. The U.S. is the, is the least active, the most resistant to this idea. But he, he came up with a system to talk about sharing, spreading the cost of the consequences of, of climate change and of these putting this, this carbon into the atmosphere, into the environment, and has come up with like the actual cost. In, in other words, what would it cost 
you know, if we had some kind of national tax on corporations, on states, on these kinds of things that contributed to these devastating consequences of climate change and have made, you know, continue to make it worse. I think advocating for that kind of legislation, that sort of economic policy is something we can do. You know, the, the work is done there. That's why, the, the, you know, this guy received the Nobel Prize um, because his his work is significant. You don't have to be an economist to, and understand all the intricacies, but you can say, you know, I, I want my state legislature to enact some of these policies. It may not happen at the federal level. It certainly won't with the current administration. But we could work at the local level in the same way that the state of California has refused to withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement. As a local uh, government, the state of California, which is the world's third, if you considered it a separate economy, it's the third largest economy in the world, they've said, we, we are going to abide by these principles. So I think that kind of advocacy we see at the local level, and I think that's where we begin. Well, that's probably a good place to leave it with an exhortation to uh, to get involved politically and prayerfully in these issues and to to recognize that even though the book of Isaiah says that, you know, God is going to make the world all new from the trash that we leave. That doesn't mean that we don't have a responsibility to care for what we've been given now. And so, Dan, thanks again for taking the time to talk. It's always great to catch up with you. David, the pleasure is all mine. The Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media. We recorded the show at the William Adams Studios here in beautiful Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any institutions with which we might be affiliated. We have production space courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they're wonderful folks, and you should look them up at zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N center dot O-R-G. We also want to give a shout out to our friends at Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're also not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at FrancisFXPod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. Likewise, our website is FrancisFXPod.com. If you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing FrancisEffectPod at gmail.com. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We've got a bunch of episodes you can check out from our seasons. Thank you for listening. <laughs>